Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 23, Judges chapter 16. You know, Samson must be one of the most ironic characters in the entire Bible. It's hard to know what to make out of him. And, and allegorizing who he was and what he did into a wide array of sermons and topical discussions has proved to be irresistible to rabbis and pastors alike over the ages. You know, there's a very fine line between recognizing and applying a, a, a biblically defined God pattern to a situation versus kind of twisting the meaning of a Bible passage into something that attempts to prove a point. And the key to knowing which you're hearing is the context. If the context of the application is the same as the context of the original scriptural pattern, then the application is probably being properly applied. If it's not, probably ought to be discounted as ear-tickling words of persuasion. Now, whether listening to me or to any Bible teacher, that standard should always be kept in mind. Thus, I think and I hope that what I'm about to say to you falls within the former rather than the latter category, and it's this. Samson presents us with a wonderful and unexpected picture of the church in general and individual believers Specifically, Samson's pattern of being a walking, talking irony is the same pattern of any follower of Yeshua. Each of us, from the least to the most pious among us, is a living irony. The Apostle Paul spoke about this strange condition of the believer at length. But he summed it up in one of the most desperate, frustrated, passionate moments of his life when he made a bold admission, not only about his own spiritual condition, but also about the mysteries of his relationship with God and how they seem to play out in his life. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. just going to read a few verses of it. I'm going to go from uh, 11 through 24. In your complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1409. I'm going to read seven, uh, 11 through 24. This is Paul. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, sin killed me. So the Torah is holy. That is, the commandment is holy, just, good. Then did something good become for me a source of death? Heaven forbid. Rather, it was sin working death in me through something good. So that sin might be clearly exposed as sin. So that sin through the commandment might come to be experienced as sinful beyond measure. 
For we know that the Torah is of the Spirit. But as for me, I'm bound to the old nature, sold to sin as a slave. I don't understand my own behavior. I don't do what I want to do. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, I am agreeing that the Torah is good. But now it's no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside of me. For I know that there is nothing good housed inside of me, that is, inside my old nature. I can want what is good, but I can't do it. For I don't do the good I want. Instead, I do the evil that I don't want it to do. What am I doing? What the real me doesn't want, it is no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside of me. So I find it to be the rule, a kind of a perverse Torah or law, that although I want to do what is good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner self, I completely agree with God's Torah, but in my various parts, I see a different Torah, one that battles with the Torah in my mind, makes me a prisoner of sin's Torah, which is operating in my various parts. Oh, what a miserable creature I am. Who will rescue me from this body bound for death? You know, I try really hard to avoid reading this passage more than I have to. I mean that. Because it hits home too hard. It reminds me of the stark reality of my own life and my walk with the Lord. And it's not the pretty picture that we hope for and is so often preached. My only comfort is that all you followers of Christ live the same lives of irony as I do. And Paul did. And Samson lived. We are saved by God's grace, yet we've done nothing to merit it. And we only seldom even behave like it. Or see the grace and see that particular grace in action through our lives. We have the Spirit of God living in us. Not because we've earned it, but because He declared us clean and holy enough to be His earthly temples. Yet our corrupted flesh remains just as corrupt as before our salvation and our evil inclinations remain fully operational. We have a holy and divine text at our fingertips that explains who God is, what His will is for us. We have a holy guide who lives literally within us. And yet we choose, more often than not, to ignore all that and look elsewhere for validation and do what pleases us at the moment. We usually know it's wrong when we do it, and that it is sin, but we do it anyway. So insistent is our natural rebellious instinct. Even worse, we detect and recognize God-induced urgings deep inside of us 
that tell us that there are things to do, ways to be, that part of our purpose for being created and having been elected and saved in the first place is to do those things, to be that way. But we often contemplate those divine unctions, mull them over, wrestle with them, and then discard them in favor of personal comfort and convenience and familiarity. In the end, this was Samson. In the end, Paul recognized it was also himself. And in the end, it's you. And it's me. As the church of Messiah Yeshua. And as we begin to study the nearly universally known story of Samson and Delilah in Judges chapter 16, this week will be much more sermon than history. And even at that, I won't be able to do more than scratch the surface of all there is to learn from our God by means of this story of Samson and about who we really are in Him and what we should expect in our relationship with Him and how our lives will generally play out as physical creatures in these frail and unreliable temporary vessels that we call bodies. I want you to watch for something. As I read to you this chapter that too many have labeled as a simple Hebrew children's tale, which it certainly is not. And it's this. There is a decided distinction between faith and faithfulness. Faith is an act of the intellect interacting with the spirit. You know, Hindus have faith. Muslims have faith. Even atheists have faith. What separates the faith that we read about in the Holy Scriptures from all other kinds is that it is an act of our intellect with a Holy Spirit. And it is at the divine will of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that it even happens within us. The source and object of our faith is everything. By itself and unrealized, however, faith is passive. Regardless of whatever kind of faith it may be, even the truly holy kind, until faith is put to work, it's dormant. James, brother of Jesus, called it a dead faith. Faith in action transforms to faithfulness. Faith is knowing. Faithfulness is doing. So it's not only possible, but from my personal experience, and from the many examples given in the Bible, I'd say it is typical that one can have faith, but not be at all faithful. Faith in the right thing will indeed save us for unimaginable joy and peace in the next world. But our lack of faithfulness 
will bring us nothing but misery and confusion and destruction in this present world. Let's read Judges 16 from the beginning so we can get the whole story. Judges chapter 16. Complete Jewish Bible, page uh, 289. Shimshon went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute and went in to spend the night with her. And the people in Gaza were told that Samson had come, so they surrounded the place where he was and also set an ambush for him all night at the city gates. Their plan was to do nothing at night but to wait till morning and then kill him. But Samson stayed in bed until midnight and then he got up, took hold of the doors of the city gate, the two posts as well, pulled them up, bar and all, hoisted them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill overlooking Hebron. After this, he fell in love with a woman who lived in the Sorek Valley whose name was Delilah. The chiefs of the Pilshtim, the Philistines, went up to her and said, Coax him into telling you where his great strength comes from and how we can overcome him so that we can tie him up and subdue him. If you do, each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Delilah said to Samson, Please, tell me what it is that makes you so strong. How could someone tie you up and subdue you? And Samson replied, Well, if they tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have never been dried... I will become as weak as any other man. The chiefs of the Philistines brought to her seven fresh bowstrings which had not been dried, and she tied him up with them. Now she had people lying in wait in the inside room, so she said to him, Samson, the Philistines have come for you. But he snapped those bowstrings as easily as a piece of straw breaks when it touches fire, and the source of his strength remained unknown. Delilah said to Samson, You're making fun of me. You're telling me lies. Now come on, tell me what it takes to tie you up. All it takes, he answered, is to tie me up with new ropes that have never been used. Then I'll become as weak and be like anyone else. So Delilah took new ropes, tied him up and said to him, Samson, the Philistines have come for you. The people lying in wait were in the inside room, but he broke those ropes from his arms like a thread. Delilah said to Samson, Till now you've been making fun of me and telling me lies. Tell me what it is that, tell me what it takes to tie you up. And he said, If you weave the seven locks of my hair across the thread on a loom. So she fastened her cloth work in the loom with a pin and wove his hair in and then said to him, Samson, the Philistines have come for you. He awoke from his sleep, pulled away from the loom pin and interwoven cloth. And she said to him, Now how can you say you love me when your heart isn't with me? Three times you've made fun of me and you haven't told me the source of your great strength. And every day she kept nagging him and pressing at him till it bothered him to death. So that he finally told her everything. And he said to her, No razor has ever touched my head because I have been a Nazir of God since I was born. If someone shaves me, then my strength will leave me and I will be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had really confided in her, she sent and summoned the chiefs of the Philistines with the message. Come up this one last time because he's finally told me the truth. 
the chiefs of the Philistines went up to her and brought the money with them and she had him go to sleep in her lap and then called for a man to shave off his seven locks of hair. Then she began tormenting him but his strength had gone away and she said, Samson, the Philistines have come for you. He awoke from his sleep and said, I'll get out this time so I'll just, I, just as I shook myself loose before. But he didn't know that Adonai had left him. So the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza. There they bound him with two bronze chains, put him to work grinding grain at the mill in the prison. However, after the hair on his head had been cut off, it began growing back again. The chiefs of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to their god, Dagon. And as they celebrated, they sang, Our God has handed over to us our enemy, Samson. And upon seeing him, the people praised their God. Our God has handed over to us our enemy who destroyed our land and killed so many of us. And when they were in high spirits, they said, Summon Samson to amuse us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he amused them. When they, had, when they put him between the columns, Samson said to the boy holding him by the hand, let me feel the columns supporting the building so that I can lean on them. And the building was full of men and women and all the chiefs of the Philistines were there. And in addition to them, there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching as Samson performed. Samson called to Adonai, Adonai Elohim, just this once, please think of me and please give me strength so that I can take revenge on the Philistines for at least one of my two eyes. Samson got a good hold on those two middle columns supporting the building and he leaned on them, one in his right hand, the other in his left, and then crying, let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all of his might and the building collapsed on the chiefs and all the people inside, so he killed more of his death than he had killed during his life. His brothers and all his father's family came down, took him, brought him up, buried him between Sorah and Eshtol, in the tomb of his father, Manoah. He had judged Israel for 20 years. Now we covered the first few verses of this chapter last week. And in a nutshell it was this. Samson's sexual passions had overcome him. And he journeyed from his home in the territory of Judah, the village of Sorah, to the Philistine stronghold of Gaza. And when he arrived, he immediately engaged the services of a prostitute. The townspeople heard he was there, plotted to kill him in the morning, undoubtedly in the vicinity of the city gates, where he was sure to leave. Now something in Samson alerted him to this impending danger, and so he got up and headed out at midnight, but he took a little souvenir with him when he left. Gaza's city gates. That there is... No mention of the Spirit of God overcoming him at that moment causes me to conclude that Samson acted using his own innate strength to pick up those gates made of wood and iron and carry them off on his shoulders. Samson was an extremely strong man even without the occasional special anointing of God with supernatural ability. So perhaps one way we can recognize 
a direct impulse from God upon Samson to do a certain action, as opposed to Samson doing his own thing, was when we read that the Ruach HaKodesh came upon him. Yet we must not lose sight that Samson was created for the purpose of causing discord between Israel and the Philistines and to try to undo all the efforts of both sides to affect a peaceful coexistence. What we can see, however, is that in general God merely allowed Samson's own fleshly desires and evil inclinations to but operate in a way that Samson's actions actually advanced God's agenda. In fact, it's my opinion that this rather mysterious but standard operating procedure of the Lord is at work more than any other in the lives of humans. Well, after throwing the gates off of a hillside on the road to Hebron, Samson returns home, but verse 4 tells us that in some undefined, undefined amount of time later, Samson came back into Philistine territory for the same reason he always seemed to come. Women. Philistine women. And while the four-chapter block that forms the story of Samson is certainly not a comprehensive history of Samson's life and deeds, it apparently is representative. And what is represented is that every documented event about Samson has to do with his love-hate relationship with the pagan world. Love of pagan Philistine women and hate of pagan Philistine people in general. This is another of the many ironies of Samson and his behavior and his thought processes. But isn't it the same with Messiah's church? Don't we all want to, on the one hand, be different and separated from the world? And yet, on the other, we wind up doing all we can to cozy up to it and even hanging on to it with all of our might. We want unbelievers to see us as different, but not too different. Such that we're oddballs, or intolerant, or offensive. There are things about the world we like. There are things about the world we hate. And even the parts we like, or even love, aren't necessarily godly in any way. Basically, these worldly things are like sugar to flies. And so, these things are important to us and we can't even imagine giving them up. And more often than not, though, it's these worldly things that trip us up, causes us pain, keeps us from turning our faith into faithfulness to the Lord. Oh, we can resist for long periods of time when we really put our minds to it. But even our memories eventually fade and we're back for another try at somehow rationalizing and harmonizing our fleshly wants and desires with the ways of heaven. 
at least until God deals with that particular portion of our lives. Samson has fallen in love with the devastatingly seductive Delilah, who lived in the Sorek Valley in the territory of the Philistines, only a short distance from the village of Timnah, where his aborted attempt at marriage to another Philistine girl occurred. Now, some like to point to Delilah's name as her destiny, as is often the case with ancient names. But there is no consensus today as to the meaning of Delilah. Some say it means weak. Others say it simply means hair. Still others say delicate. Some say it means uprooted. There are a few who claim that it had to be a Philistine name because she was a Philistine. It's quite likely, though, that Delilah was not even her real given name. But rather, it was a title or a nickname given to her, probably by Hebrews, well after the Samson affair. And by the way, this is a very common occurrence in the Bible. And without doubt, it's a derogatory title, whatever it means. Delilah was a worshiper, worshiper of the god Dagon and fully loyal to the Philistines. Samson's affair with Delilah apparently became fairly well known and the kings of the five main Philistine cities decided that this just might represent an opportunity to finally do something about this one-man wrecking crew that had spoiled their hope of peace with Israel on their terms, of course, for almost 20 years. These Philistine kings were smart. They were pragmatic men. And they figured that since no amount of force had ever worked to subdue Samson, that the only remaining avenue was deception and trickery. By now, Samson's insatiable desire for beautiful Philistine girls was common knowledge. And so what better bait for a trap than the latest female form who had captured Samson's lustful eye. So they go to Delilah and they tell her that they need to know the secret of Samson's strength. It was obvious to them that the source of Samson's power was magical. And so it would take a magical solution to deprive him of that great strength. They recognize that size and muscle alone cannot possibly allow for Samson's seeming invulnerability. So they offered Delilah 1,100 pieces of silver each if Delilah can pry from Samson the omen or the symbol or the means of his otherworldly strength. With 5,500 pieces of silver at stake, truly a king's ransom, Delilah enthusiastically undertook the task, thus revealing her cold and calculating nature. So one day, Delilah casually asks Samson the $64,000 question. And the much too self-confident Samson toys with her. Undoubtedly, Delilah approached the subject carefully and at just the right moment, so as not to appear too eager or conspiring. But Samson liked playing games. He was just a big kid. So he approached her inquiry as a game. 
not realizing the deadly wager that awaited the eventual winner. Samson being Samson, he invents a lie. And he tells her that the magical power that can defeat him is if if seven fresh bowstrings are used to tie him up, he'll be as weak as any normal man. And she tells this story to her benefactors, and they supply the seven bowstrings, and she binds him with them. But she's a clever woman. And she wasn't particularly convinced that Samson was being honest with her, so she had some men waiting in a nearby room to assist her. And as a test, she shouts out, Samson, the Philistines are here for you. Samson reacts instantly, and the bowstrings snap like they were but single pieces of wheat straw. Now understand, Delilah was not naive. The possibility that seven bowstrings were the secret was plausible to her because the number seven was seen as a magical number in that era. Further, a fresh bowstring was quite strong. See, bowstrings in that age were usually made from the tendon of an animal. And the the fresher the tendon, the stronger they were until they dried out And then they broke rather easily. No normal human could have been bound with seven fresh bowstrings and simply break them at will. Now, not to be deterred from because such a great prize awaited her, Delilah pesters Samson again to divulge that magic formula. Samson, recalling the incident many years earlier at Atom Rock, when the 3,000 men of Judah came to arrest and bind him and to turn him over to the Philistines, told Delilah that by using new rope, which means moist rope that hadn't been weakened by use, that would do the trick. Samson's playing with fire. He's just too blinded with his passion and his arrogance to see it. So he tells Delilah to have him bound with new ropes and he'd be as weak as normal men. And she ties him up and yells, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And again, he instantly reacted and the ropes broke like they were thread. Delilah is nothing if not persistent. Now she starts starts with the angle of telling Samson he's been lying to her and making fun of her all along. In other words, he's starting to hurt her feelings. Now men... We all know that at that point we're in trouble. The hurt the feelings thing is like staring into the headlight of an oncoming train, and we either jump aside or we're going to get run over. So Samson moves beyond the total nonsense, and he tells her a partial truth. Is there any doubt? that Delilah is just a couple more moves off of the chess pieces before it's checkmate. And he tells her to weave his hair into seven braids and then weave the seven braids while still attached to his head into the cloth of a loom. Now the loom was a large cloth-making device that was affixed to the ground. Certainly, if what he was saying this time was true, if the weaving of his hair into the loom took away his strength, then he'd be trapped 
caught like a ram by his horns in the thicket and left helplessly attached to this heavy weaving machine. So Delilah does it, and obviously Samson allows it. Now, I don't know about you, but I think Samson must have been one dumb guy. All right, if he wasn't catching on to Delilah's intentions by now. I mean, love is grand and everything. But just how far is he willing to go before he calls a halt to what was bound to lead to his capture and destruction? Women, I'm almost afraid to tell you this. But men can be that blinded by a seductive female. In the same way that we regularly hear of women striking up a romance with a male inmate that's behind bars for life for some of the most heinous crimes and even marrying him over the phone or through the mail knowing that she'll likely never see him except through steel bars now that one still baffles me she will profess her love and go on totally dedicated to this deadbeat for years with an irrational and dangerous liaison. Amazing. But you know something? Men were just as bad. Young men especially are suckers for outward beauty and sexy flirtations. Older men can be as well, but we ought to know better. Even though there are major red flags in that kind of a relationship, you know, we'll still pursue it because the launch sequence has started and we don't know how to stop it. <laughs> Sex is maybe the most powerful, powerful force there is between humans. If Samson only had a family friend who was a girl, or maybe he had a sister, she would have immediately seen through Delilah's insincerity. But Samson didn't seem to have any of those. He wanted sex. Not too much else from a woman. Thus, we don't ever read of Samson having any relationships among Hebrew women because the law of Moses doesn't stand for illicit sexual relationships among God's people. Well, with his hair... Now thoroughly woven into the loom and the goofy Samson just loving it all. Delilah again tests the situation with the same results. That does it. Now she raises the ante. It began, as it says in verse 16, nagging him every day and pressing him until it bothered him to death. He had already partly divulged the truth and that his hair had something to do with it. But apparently sensing it was either fish or cut bait, the truth just comes spilling out of his mouth. It's his hair, he says. It is his hair. This is the source of his strength and this is because he's a Nasir. Thus, since his birth, his hair has never been cut because that's all part of a Nazarite vow. Cut his hair, his strength is gone. Delilah instinctively knew this is it. So there was not going to be any more tests. She sends now for the five Philistine kings to come up and observe as she springs the trap on their arch enemy. Besides, she wanted payment on the spot 
And so we read in verse 18 that they brought all the money with them. Now likely a little bit of time passes. And once again Samson convinces himself he's got all this under control. She lulls him to sleep. Head in her lap. And then signals for a barber to come in. His hair was still braided into seven locks. So cutting them off would have been pretty quick. As he awakens, she starts to do something. We don't know what it is. It will give some assurance to everybody who's present that his strength has truly left him. When that proves to be the case, she says the words to spring the trap. Samson, the Philistines have come for you. He's now helpless in the grasp of a few Philistine soldiers. He doesn't recognize his weakened condition at first. And he thinks to himself, I'll just shake these men right off of me like dust and be free. Because he's always done that. But it was over. His Nazarite hair was gone. And with it is amazing strength. Now there's so many valuable lessons and principles here that we're only going to cover a couple of the most important ones today. First, obviously, let's talk about that hair. Why did losing his long hair end his strength? It was because he had lost the final symbol of his set-apart and unique relationship with Yehovah. I said symbol because the existence of his hair itself was not magical. It didn't carry some kind of mystical or cosmic connection to the Lord per se. You know, just like Levitical sacrifices, where the blood of bulls and goats carried no inherent power in it, but rather it was the doing of these rituals in accordance with God's instructions that was the issue. It was the same thing with Samson's hair. It was a matter of obedience to God for Samson to keep his long hair. When a man sinned, confessed it to God, and brought his sacrifice of atonement to the altar with a contrite heart, it was all about obedience, not magical power. A Nasir had precise God-ordained observances written down in the Torah and he was to obey these. Eat no great products. Don't touch a human corpse. Don't touch your hair. Or rather, don't cut your hair. Don't observe these and the Nazarite vow is broken. Let me put this another way. Break the terms of the vow and that person is no longer a Nazarite. The special and set-apart relationship with God is dissolved. And with it, whatever power or special anointing that comes from it. Symbols, whether God-ordained or man-designed, are really tricky things. Men have a tendency to misuse both. But in neither case do symbols contain inherent power. Yet when God ordains a specific purpose for a symbol, it is to be employed. And employed precisely as instructed. 
Even with God-ordained symbols, men can falsely impute special power to them, which was never intended. A great example of this was the pole with the bronze serpent on it that Moses erected out in the wilderness to stop a plague of poisonous snake bites. The pole was kept. It was transported into the promised land. And for hundreds of years, it was used wrongly as an object of worship. The pole was created as a divine tool meant as a one-time only solution to save Israel from the consequences of a serious rebellion against God. But it worked so well that the Israelites on their own decided it must have special power that they could call upon as they needed it indefinitely. Once we impute power to them, symbols become idols. Whether we acknowledge it or not. A menorah is a God-ordained and authorized symbol, but it has no power. A star of David is a man-created symbol. It has no power. The Ark of the Covenant is a God-ordained symbol. It has no power. A cross is a man-created symbol. It has no power. But I have personally witnessed each of these symbols being looked upon by some as though they were inherently holy, inherently full of power, and worth fighting and dying over in some cases. What happens is that without our really thinking about it, we have emotionally or intellectually transferred some amount or even most of our trust to the symbol instead of maintaining it exclusively in the invisible God of Israel. Symbols are dangerous things, and we tend to take them very lightly. The problem is that when we have put even just a little trust in a symbol, if we lose that symbol, or kept apart from it for some reason, we tend to lose faith. When Samson's hair was severed from his head, God departed from him, we're told. God was his strength. But I'm not so sure Samson understood that at first. Understand this situation here now. The Lord had imbued Samson with such amazing strength that no one could have forcibly taken the symbol of his Nazarite relationship with God from him a God-ordained and a symbol that God ordained and, and that he wanted to have used. But Samson toyed with it. He used that divine symbol of uncut hair as part of a dangerous and very frivolous game with a girl who was essentially a whore and working for the enemy. And he thus allowed his long hair as the symbol of his faithfulness to God to slip away from him because he had devalued it so much. Believers, take this to heart. We cannot ignore or misuse the God-ordained symbols of our expected faithfulness to the God of Israel 
and assume that the power that he has given us to make a difference on this earth will remain with us. We cannot possibly deliver the good news to the people who need it, be healed of our diseases, expect him to listen to our prayers and supplications if we back away from the things he considers vital and important and central to our relationship with him. There are two symbols that the Lord has given us to abide in as an ongoing display of our faith in him. The Sabbath and confessing with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, baptism is a sign too, but it's a one-time ceremony. Listen to Exodus 31, starting in verse 12. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, You are to observe my Shabbats, for this is a sign between me and you through all your generations, so that you will know that I am Adonai who set you apart for me. Therefore you are to keep my Shabbat, because it is set apart for you. Anyone who treats it as ordinary must be put to death, for whoever does work on it is to be cut off from his people. On six days work will get done. But the seventh day is Shabbat, for a complete rest set apart for Adonai. Whoever does work on the day of Shabbat must be put to death. The people of Israel are to keep the Shabbat, to observe the Shabbat. Throughout all their generations is a perpetual covenant. It's a sign between me and the people of Israel forever. For in six days Adonai made heaven and earth, but on the seventh he stopped working and rested. And then Jesus makes this following connection regarding himself. When he says in Luke 6, the Son of Man is Lord of the Shabbat. Is he Lord over something that doesn't exist anymore? I don't think so. By the way, do not think that I said that these two symbols bring us salvation. Only trust in Yeshua as Messiah can do that. But observing Sabbath and confessing Christ openly are acts of faithfulness that are fully expected of all believers. So, did God departing from Samson mean that in modern Christianese, Samson had lost his salvation, even if it was an Old Testament kind. Samson's loss of his hair as the chief symbol of his special relationship with God did not mean that Samson was spiritually cut off from God and destined for the place of torments that we now call hell. So we come now full circle back to what we discussed and I asked you to watch for at the beginning of today's lesson. The critical difference between faith and faithfulness. By all accounts, Samson's faith remained. It was his faithfulness that he left abandoned. Samson didn't stop believing in the God of Israel. He didn't even adopt other gods so far as we're aware. He just stopped being obedient. In fact, we kind of watch as over time he gave in to his baser instincts. He touched dead bodies. He used prostitutes. He preferred the company of pagans and he murdered out of personal anger and revenge. The result 
was a state of spiritual weakness in him that led to his physical weakness. He now, with the loss of his Nazarite symbol, his hair, had no more power or strength than any pagan man. It's the same for believers. I'm not going to get into a debate today about the issue of can a man lose his salvation. I've spoken about it on many occasions. Because the point here is that a believer who backs away from his special relationship with God by means of disobedience will get weaker and weaker and weaker spiritually. He's more easily influenced by the world because he's less protected by God. He's less blessed by God, more connected to earthly treasures. There is almost no temptation he can withstand anymore since his nearness to God has evaporated. I can tell you from personal experience that a man can lose all faithfulness and thus all power and nearness to the Lord, but still have faith and remain saved. That was my condition a few decades ago. I was a believer. I never stopped believing in God. I never renounced or denied Yeshua HaMashiach in my heart or to anyone. But I did stop being obedient. I did stop paying any attention to God whatsoever. I did stop living the new life afforded to me by Messiah. I did start to poo-poo certain aspects of the Holy Scripture because it didn't make any sense to my mind anymore. I didn't pray. I didn't worship. I didn't study or apply the Word of God. And I was about as useless of a disciple as you could possibly imagine. I went from destruction to destruction in my personal life. From tragedy to tragedy. From rebellion to rebellion I moved. I had faith. But I was not faithful. And the result was obvious, even though I was oblivious to the whole process. So that one day, when everything finally fell to pieces, I knew instantly what I had done. Instantly. I confessed it all to God. I vowed to relearn how to be faithful. My life started to change. And in time, buds for future fruit began to form in me. But the process of returning to faithfulness, huh, that was long and painful. And it didn't affect only me. It never does. No man can measure your faith. But faithfulness is usually pretty apparent. And while the first thing that happens when we're saved is the acquisition of faith, the next step is faithfulness. Allow me to give you an analogy that was used in the Bible. Human birth. When we're born, for just a few hours, a few days old, we're pretty useless little creatures. 
Certainly we're loved. We have value in God's eyes. Our mere existence brings joy to our mother and father. But the Torah didn't even recognize a newborn as qualified to be part of Israel or to be called a person until a full cycle of the moon had passed. Basically, as an infant, all we can do is receive and suck up resources. That's it. Of course, we're not supposed to stay in that condition, are we? We're supposed to grow, mature, learn, give back, become a useful part of society, and then the cycle begins all over again by our part in bringing forth new infants. Coming to faith in Yeshua is like that. And thus the Bible calls it being born again. When at first we believe we're pretty helpless and useless to the kingdom of God. All we can do is receive. We have great value in the Father's eyes and we're loved by our Savior. Those who led us to the Lord have joy in us. But we're not to remain in that infant state. We're expected to grow, mature, learn, give back, become a useful part of the believer's community so that we can play a role in bringing forth new reborn people. Our rebirth is from faith. The growth, maturity, learning, giving back, and usefulness that ought to come in time are from and their display of our faithfulness. In the faithfulness and our usefulness ends along with it. Samson was taken into custody and his eyes were gouged out. Here is yet another irony in this story of ironies. His eyes were the instruments of his unfaithfulness. His eyes were the portals of his lust. He always did, we're told, what was right in his own eyes. And now God's harsh justice and greatest mercy demanded that those fleshly eyes be blinded to the things of the world so that Samson could finally see the Lord. We'll finish this chapter next week.